We're in the book of Acts, chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. Listen to these words. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, one of the disciples, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. There was an and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran over to him and heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet, and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For all for his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went away on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning to you all. I, our children are here with us in, in the gathering this morning. And one of mine who will rename, remain nameless was, I wish we could go back to kids, Dad. I said, you don't want to uh, hear me preach? I would love to, to have you here to hear me preach. And she said, it's boring and it's always the same thing. And I think my other child chimed in with the second thing. It's like they had, were a chorus. Um, so I hope to do better than that. But it really is an honor to be here with you this morning. And I just want to pass on my greetings and my love from Sojourn Galleria especially. And we just love y'all and we're pressing into being the family that we know that we are and say that we are here. So this is an expression of that and I'm really, I'm really honored to be here with you. So C.S. Lewis, it, those of you that have heard me preach at all just knew that it, I might as well get it out of the way because you knew that he was going to be in this, in this sermon. Uh, C.S. Lewis has an essay that it was a 1944 memorial lecture, maybe at the University of London, uh, right toward the end of the war. And rather than preaching on something that was to do with wartime, he preached on something that, to my mind, is, is really timeless, as he was so wont to do and so gifted at doing. And it, it ended up being published in an essay called The Inner Ring. The Inner Ring. And to me, it's one of the most helpful dynamics, the dynamic he describes that I've ever come across. And in The Inner Ring, he talks about, he starts with, um, sort of characteristically, with a, a piece of great literature from The War and Peace, and then he goes on to describe for the rest of the address, which is a, an essay now, a dynamic that is according to unwritten rules, you're either in the inner circle socially 
for a variety of reasons, and there are lots of different inner circles in life, or you're out. And basically what he says is, it's one of the strongest dynamics of life. He actually says, my main purpose in this address is simply to convince you that this desire to be in the inner ring, and not only to get into the inner ring, but once you're in, in whatever way, whether it's you know, in your profession as an attorney or a doctor or, or whatever you do, a teacher, or just socially or in some other capacity, um, once you're in, to, you really focus, even if you don't mean to or want to, on keeping others out. Um, so he says, my, my desire is simply to convince you that this desire is one of the great permanent mainsprings of human action. And he, he sort of shorthands it by saying, you know, it's you and it's Tony and it's me, but it's not them. There's always a not them aspect to it. Um, to me, I could sort of shorthand it by saying, at least when you're kids, you come, you come up to another sort of cadre of children that are whispering, maybe with their backs to you in a little circle. And then, when, and then when you come along, they sort of break up and look like this. And you realize all of a sudden you've witnessed an inner ring that you're not a part of. Um, doesn't happen that way as much with adults, but it absolutely happens as much with adults. Uh, it happened this week to my wife, and then my wife was asked by someone else, what are you doing today? And she said, oh, I'm going to this, this thing with these moms, and she just assumed her, friend, her dear friend would have been invited. They're in the same circles, and her friend just kind of went, I didn't get an invite. And she's felt that as well this week, and then I've had some of my children this week in other capacities. So it's just, it's a commonplace. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. The sad thing is, um, churches can get like this. And it's ironic, uh, maybe the, one of the greatest of ironies, because the church is maybe the one institution that, that survives for the sake of its non-members. Um, and now that's an overstatement. That's an overstatement. Um, somebody has said that. Um, but the inner ring syndrome can take hold of us for a number of reasons, sometimes after a trauma. We've all been through, the, the church universal has been through trauma the past two years. Just fo you can, when you're personally or corporately going through trauma, the tendency is to, as Augustine said, be incurvatus se, to be curved in on yourself, to be focused on repairing, and to a certain degree that's good, but sometimes there's such a focus on community and on taking care of what's going on inside that we forget about mission. And then, of course, our own sin and insecurity can play into that big time. Um, so the point of this text that Paul just read for us, that God has given us, that's here in Acts, for me at least today, and you see it just highlighted, is that we, we oftentimes, because of our sin, insecurities, circumstances, we often do, as people and sinners, fallen people, do all we can um, to keep people in the inner circle that we are in, out. Or we do all we can to scrap, to get into that inner circle that we've been told is sort of the sumum bonum of life. But what this thing shows us this morning, this word from God that really happened in history, is that God is just the opposite. He's just the opposite. God leaves the inner ring, the ultimate inner ring, where there is complete security and riches and satisfaction to go after the one who's on the outside at infinite cost to himself and to bring them back. And, and when we experience 
that graciousness, that largesse, that love, um, it changes us and it compels us to also be a people who go out, especially after the person that's on the edges, to bring them in. And it's countercultural. So we're called to be a missionary people, as I know that's it's a big, that's really what this series is about, called to be a, a church on mission because God is a missionary God. And that's what we see here uh, this morning. So, so just briefly, who is Philip? Who is Philip? Um, Philip is mentioned in Acts 6 first in the book of Acts. He's there along with Stephen and five others who are appointed to be ministers to serve uh, Greek-speaking Jewish widows. And he's, he's described as full of faith, full of wisdom, and the Holy Spirit. He's listed second after Stephen, who, as a lot of us know, testifies boldly with the Spirit in him, paralleling Christ in a lot of ways, to the gospel and to the lordship of Jesus Christ, saying, as they invariably do when they're filled with the Spirit, with such love in treating people, but with such boldness, just as Jesus did, because the Spirit of Jesus, just as Jesus did when he was on this earth, because the Spirit of Christ is in them, with boldness telling them, oh, you crucified him. You made a big mistake, but now his arms are open wide and he's offering you his forgiveness. And so, uh, as we know, Stephen went to his death for that. He was uh, the first recorded martyr for preaching the gospel. And Philip is next in line. We don't hear about any of the other five in the rest of the book of Acts, but we hear about Philip. He kind of fills out chapter eight, but we're just looking at the end here. Um, he's a Greek-speaking Jew. So he's a, it's called a Hellenist. He's a Greek-speaking Jew. Um, so directly before the episode that ends chapter eight that Paul just read, Philip is absolutely cleaning house in a good way. He is leading a revival. His, his moniker became Philip the Evangelist. He is leading a revival among an entire, formerly, formerly not only neglected, but hated people group of the Jews, the Samaritans. And he's in Samaria and he's seeing whole villages come to Christ up north between, between Galilee and Jerusalem. And they're seeing healings on a ma- en masse. They're seeing deliverance from demons. They're seeing whole villages come to Jesus. And in the midst of this revival that God has given him the blessing of allowing to, of, of spearheading, what does God do? He says, your time's up. Leave. Go into the desert. Crazy. Leave in the middle of this hot revival and go into the desert. Um, so, and he tells him to go southwest of Jerusalem to the desert road, which eventually led down to Egypt. So basically, the, it was old Gaza was about where he met probably this Ethiopian eunuch. He didn't know he was there, right? Remember that. We do. But he didn't. He just heard God say, leave the revival and go out into the desert. Um, so let me just underline this point to start us off. God's call and command often seem anywhere from ranging from strange to utterly insane. And they certainly would have if Philip was just thinking with his brain and what he knew in this moment. Craig Keener says this, he says, Philip might have no one to preach to on a little traveled road that would lead by a deserted city, old Gaza. And after the revival in Samaria, this command must seem absurd to him. 
The term translated, check this out. So when, 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 God, when the angel of God or the spirit of God says to Philip, go south to the desert road, it leads him to the coast and then south to Egypt, go out in the middle of nowhere, leave the revival, I've got this, it's not you anyway. <laughs> I use you, but it's not you, right? The, word, the term south can also be translated, it's not a variant in the text, it's just, it can also read noon. So go into the desert in the ancient Near East at noon. Nobody traveled at noon in the desert. Nobody. You took a siesta. It was way too hot. So this, Keener says, this detail, if intended, would make the command seem even more absurd. Keener continues, but God had often tested faith through apparently absurd commands. In other words, not the first time. If you've read anything else of the Bible, if you know anything else of the God uh, of Israel, uh, not the first time he's done this, right? He, he loves working this way. His ways often seem bizarre or even insane to us. Um, so Keener mentions Moses, the command of Moses to lift up. Hey, lift up your staff. I know Egyptian army is bearing down on you and there's an ocean in front of you. And you've got about 2 million of my people who are slaves. They were 24 hours ago. Lift your stick up over the ocean. Everything's going to be okay, you know? Um, the command to Elijah to hide east of the Jordan and have dirty birds, ravens, feed him. And then he mentions Naaman's command, uh, the Syrian commander, to wash his leprosy clean in the dirty Jordan River. He's like, I've got better rivers up north. What's going on here? The point is God's ways are not our ways. They're higher, they're better, and they're wiser. They often will not make sense to us. We need to trust him. We don't see the whole picture, but he does. And he's teaching us something in the process. Jack Deere talks about the, the bit in Isaiah where I, Isaiah um, is the Lord speaking through him. And he says this very thing, my ways are not your ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so far, and I would even add even farther, are my ways above your ways. And Jack Deere in, his, in, in a refreshing candor says, I used to read that as, that's right, Lord. He would say to God after he read that, that's right, that's right Lord. Our, our, ways aren't, our ways aren't their ways, are they? Our ways are so much higher. We contend when we read that to pair ourselves with the Lord. Like, yeah, I, I see what you're doing. Most people don't. But the fact is, God's ways will always be higher than our ways. They, they rarely make sense to us until what? We step in and obey. And that's exactly what Philip does. Um. Another sort of point that we see here is that God, sort of jumping ahead a little bit in the text, after we meet this Ethiopian eunuch, so he's, he's running along in the desert, trusting the Lord, and he comes upon this Ethiopian eunuch who's in a chariot, which is a great sign of wealth. Another thing is God is strategic. He's always in his seeming insanity, which he's never insane. He's always perfectly sane. We're, we're the ones who are insane. He's strategic. So this man, this Ethiopian eunuch, he holds the purse strings of an entire country. Um, when you think, when you hear Ethiopia, don't think of the impoverished Ethiopia of today. It wasn't at all the same. The Ethiopia then was called Nubia, and um, and it was pretty much everything south of Egypt. Pretty much all of, all of Africa south of Egypt, um, Homer in his Odyssey calls the Ethiopians the last of men. 
to, to sort of make that point for you, right? It was everything south. The kingdom was so powerful, the kingdom of Nubia or Ethiopia, that Rome didn't even try to wage war on it. They just built a peace treaty with the country. Um, Keener again says this. He says, the Ethiopian, quote, can function as an indigenous witness in his own culture. Okay, so not only does he hold the purse strings, not only does he have the ear of the queen, who, of course, has the ear of the king, um, but, and he wouldn't even do any of the, the king in Nubia wouldn't even do any business because he was thought of as a son of heaven. So it was the queen who kind of ran the show, apparently. And so this eunuch has her ear. He's a right-hand man. If you hold the purse strings to a country, you have total trust. And that's kind of the point of the eunuch, right? The eunuch can't, he can be trusted around the harem. He can be trusted around women because for obvious reasons, he's been castrated, okay? Um, so he, uh, he can function as an indigenous, this one man, it seems crazy, right? Go, leave a revival and go to this one person. But when we see it, from this view, from the textual view, remember, try to put yourself in Philip's place and know that you have been there and you will be there. You'll be ground level thinking, what? Leave this and go there? Do that? And it can happen day to day or it can be a bigger call. But in this case and always, God is being strategic. By the third century, basically around the, the same time the Roman Empire turns from becoming a heavy persecutor of Christians to becoming a Christian nation, or a Christian empire. At the same time, historians tell us that Nubia turned. Don't think that this man didn't have something to do with that. He did. God knows what he's doing. Um, the main point I want to land on this morning is sort of what I, what I started with, with the inner ring, and that is this. God goes hard after the one. And let me follow it up by saying he goes especially hard after the one on the edges, on the periphery. Um, so he, one commentator makes the point that a lot of times the amount of narrative that's given, whether in the Old Testament or in New Testament narrative, to something tells us something about its importance, which is why, like, the story of Abraham in Genesis chapters 12 through 25, hugely important. David, King David, I think he's the longest ancient biography that we have on record, certainly in the Bible. Very important. The Messiah comes from him. Um, the amount of space that's spent on Philip going after this one guy in the desert is almost as long as all the stuff that happens in the country of Samaria put together, okay? So God cares about, he has Philip run about a hundred miles from Samaria down through Jerusalem and then southwest to the coast for this one guy. And again, Philip doesn't know about this one guy. He just knows God's called him, so he's gone. So not only, again, I'm just going to say it to iterate, does God care infinitely about one person, but he has a special love and concern for the excluded. Um, for those not in what C.S. Lewis called the inner ring. And if you think about it, we are all Thank God that he does because we are all outside of the inner ring. There are only two positions, really, in life. It's the inner ring in the good graces, in the, within peaceful fellowship, within the Godhead. And then there are those outside. And the scriptures are very clear that that's all of us. Just based on what we just sang and prayed and have been saying for the past 45 minutes, that it's, it's all of us because of our sin in our rebellion. So thank God we get the heart of the gospel here that he is a God who has a special concern for those that are 
outside of the inner ring and that he goes after them and that he sends us with his spirit in us, with the gospel on our lips, he sends us out to them as well. And so that we're to be that kind of people. So to press into that a little bit, um, this eunuch, let's press into what was his standing, right? We, we read that he's a God-fearer. He's not a Jew. He's Ethiopian, but he's a God-fearer, and he's taken the trouble of traveling. He probably would have, on this journey back home, he's been to Jerusalem to seek the true God, to seek the God of the Jews. Pretty impressive. He's been to the temple. He probably would have taken his chariot back to um, uh, to the Nile and then taken a ship on the Nile back about 200 miles south past the, As- the Aswan cataracts down to, where, uh, to his home. So he's traveled a long way. He's a God-fearer. He's made a huge effort. He's trying to get as close to God as he can. But in the law, you could not, as a eunuch, get really anywhere close to the inner temple precincts. You were forbidden. You couldn't do it. So also, in many parts of the ancient Near East, um, eunuchs were looked down upon as, not, as less manly. He didn't have as much testosterone because of, he'd been castrated. Um, some people, if you're honest with the text, this word can also mean he was, he, was, um, he was a court official. It doesn't have to mean that he was a true eunuch. But Luke repeats the word five times, which probably means that he was. He would have been looked down upon uh, in a lot of cultures, he would, would have been different. He probably would have sounded different. He's seeking God. He's trying to get close, but he really can't, even in, by Jewish law, he can't get that close to God. So what does God do? God gets close to him. God leaves heaven, comes down, does all the work necessary for this man to know him, brings him in by sending one of his men with the good news of Jesus Christ on his lips. An obedient man. How wonderful. So it's not him going, even though he is seeking God, to get close to God. It's God coming to him in the middle of one of the most unlikely places. And this is where God will work in our lives. In our lives, but then through us to others as we bring the good news of the gospel. He'll work in the most unlikely places. And it'll seem crazy. Listen. Obey. Uh, and we'll, we'll look more at that in a bit. But he finds God. God finds him in the middle of this, this desert. Um, so when you get there, another sort of sub-point, when you get there to wherever it is that God is leading you to, to, to be on mission for him, to share the gospel, to share the good, the good news of Christ and what he's done, God has already been at work. What, where do we find this guy? It's almost, it's almost a comic episode. It's so good. How God is working in his sovereignty, right? Philip runs out there. And he doesn't know what to expect, but maybe there's some anticipation, like I'm running, I'm pretty sure I'm hearing from God at this point. I've left a revival back in Samaria. Man, I'm really hot. And what are you going to do, Lord? And all of a sudden he sees a little dot and then it becomes bigger. This man in a chariot gets close enough and the Holy Spirit says, go run up beside this man. What does he hear this man reading? In the Greek, no doubt, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Greek was the language of commerce. This Ethiopian eunuch certainly as a court official would have known it. What is, what is the first language of Philip? Greek. So he hears in the Septuagint, this man is reading from Isaiah 53. Let me go ahead and read. <laughs> Perfect. 
Uh, <laughs> and that's the way God works, isn't it? He's already been working. Now the passage of this scripture, verse 32, that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Now remember, we read that and we're just like, bam, yes, touchdown, you know. And uh, he, he had no, as we can tell from the text, right, he had no idea what he was reading. He was doing, doing his daily Bible reading, Bible reading, seeking God. He'd just been from the temple. He's reading the Greek version of the Old Testament of the Hebrew Bible. But remember a few things, or know a few things. To this point, not a single line of the New Testament had been written. We know this, but it's good to remember. Um, and as one famous New Testament scholar points out, at this time also, no one, it, there was no record of any Jew having connected this servant song text, one of four in Isaiah, the suffering Messiah to any of the, of the uh, prominent, uh, to any of the messianic texts that clearly are talking about the kingdom of David, um, the, the, the recreation of all things, the redemption of God's people. No one had yet connected this text, how Messiah would suffer to any of those Messianic texts. And yet, not only has God connected them, but God has fulfilled them in the person of the Jews. They had two different camps. Messiah is going to be a suffering Messiah. Messiah is going to be a conquering Messiah. Nobody could put them together except the one who incarnated their putting together and fulfilled the scriptures, Jesus Christ, whose greatest victory was at the cross, his seemingly greatest Defeat. I was just reading this morning in my own devotional time uh, at the, toward the end of Luke where it says that they're at the Last Supper. We know this, but it just, you know how it hits you again, and that's always the Holy Spirit who's doing that, right? It's always a grace. What a grace when the Word of God implants itself in you. It says, and Satan entered Judas, and off he goes to go betray Jesus. Just that reminder that Satan was all about Jesus being betrayed and killed and crucified. He was all about it. He helped in every way. He was doing the touchdown dance when Jesus was on the cross. And then he probably started hearing Jesus go, Father, forgive them. And then when he heard, it is finished. And then when he saw the rocks crack and people coming out of their graves, he probably started to get really nervous. God is a God whose works often they're so high above ours. He didn't stop working this way at the cross, friends. He continues. He's God. We're not. His works often seem crazy to us, okay, and never more so than at the cross. So nobody's put these texts together. Philip knows. Philip has a spirit in him. Philip was he, he, he knows the whole gospel. He knows what God has incarnate, has just done in the person of Christ. He knows Christ is now reigning and victorious in heaven. He's poured out his spirit. The Ethiopian eunuch doesn't know any of these things. So he, he, he obeys God who says, go run over. And he hears this guy reading in his native language from Isaiah 53. It, it remains, even with the New Testament, one of the best Bible passages from which to share the gospel. 
I love, love, love the Ethiopian eunuch's couple comments here. First comment, next to question. Number one, the comment to Philip. Uh, Philip saying, do you understand what you're reading? How can I unless someone guides me? That's, that's God just putting, that's putting, he's putting the club right in Philip's hand right there. Okay. <laughs> question, it gets even better. From as he's, after reading Isaiah 53, tell me, does the prophet speak here of himself or someone else? I mean, and that's just God putting the ball on the tee. All he's got to do is swing. Um, it reminds me, I'm a child of the 80s and 90s, and so that's right, I'm going here. From C.S. Lewis to Ace Ventura, from the sacred to the profane. Pet detective, the original, it's the best. Um, but that, just that scene toward, you know, I guess in the middle of the movie where he goes to Ray Finkel's house, and Ray Finkel's, you know, nuts. He's gone off the deep end, and all these reporters have come over the years to Ray Finkel's parents' house, and so his dad is literally... Uh, not gun shy, he's gun bold. And so Ace Ventura comes to do some investigative work to Ray Finkel's parents' house and he knocks on the door and an old man, like, he opens up one of those sort of guardhouse kind of slit things in the door. Who is it? And he says, I'm looking for Ray Finkel. And then his dad puts a shotgun right in, right on his nose, right on Ace's nose. And he goes, and a clean pair of shorts. And then, um, and then he goes, what do you know about Ray Finkel? And, and Ace just goes, soccer-style kicker, graduated from Collier High in 1984, holds two records, one for most kicks in the season. You know, he just goes off for like 60 seconds on all the things he knows about Ray Finkel. And, and he's like, man, one hell of a model American. <gasps> you know, it's all in one breath. And I feel like, I'm sorry to do this to Philip, but that's one of the things I think of when I see this, uh, you know, tell me. Is the prophet speaking of himself or someone else? And I can just see Philip going, let me tell you, you know, I mean, it's so absolutely perfect. Hey, God got him to this point. It seemed nuts. God had been working the whole time, way before this instance, way before the Ethiopian eunuch even started traveling to Jerusalem. He knew he was going after this man with his grace and his mercy and his blood that covers all sins. God had been at work. He didn't need, he didn't need Philip. He doesn't need you and he doesn't need me. But by his grace, he involves us in this missionary enterprise. He came, he rended the heavens and passed through them in the fullness of time. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born of a woman under the law, to redeem those under the law who had been subject all their lives to slavery. And he uses us. Some, for some reason, he involves us. What a grace. Paul, of course, famously says this in Romans 10. How then will they call on him in whom they have believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who run through the desert, who say yes to God, who listen to him and who respond because God is at work. That was an insertion. That wasn't the Holy Writ. And preach the good news. Um, you, friend, I just want to say this, pause. You are that person for someone. Acts 17, 26, Paul says on Mars Hill, God has appointed all of the boundaries 
Every single place that we walk, that we habituate in, that we live, God has placed you there for a reason. He may be calling you elsewhere. He may have you here for now. You may live in a certain place. You may go shop at a certain place. You work at a certain place. And it may be home and it may not be home. God has you there not primarily for your own comfort, not just to get through life. He has you there around people that he wants you to be a Philip to. To listen, it's, it's not, in a sense, it's dead easy. Jesus said it, right? I only say what my father is saying and I only do what I see him doing. Just being in tune. This is exactly how Jesus lived. And there's a reason that Philip is looking the same way. It's because it's the spirit of Christ continuing his work through you, his body, through me. There are Ethiopian eunuchs out there that God has for you to ball, tea, swing, preach the gospel to. They will in their own way be reading from the text of Isaiah 53. And sometimes it seems hard, sometimes it seems easy, but God, he's always at work. And you may object like, yeah, that was Philip. He's in the Bible. Dude, he was special. He waited tables. He was a waiter. I mean, that's what he did. And faithful in that, full of faith in what God had done in Christ and was doing, full of the Holy Spirit, God used him. And God's going to use you. And I know he is using you. Um, he used him to convert whole people groups, and he used him to go see this man gloriously saved. Okay. Um, later on, so a few verses later, this man was reading that whole text, and they, they probably talked all around it. And then, and then uh, undoubtedly, Philip shared much more of the gospel with him, such that when they get to water, the man knows that he's to be baptized. Philip's probably shared about the fact that through faith in Christ, we can, be, we can also be those among God's people who pass through the death waters of the Red Sea that God parts, that brings us into the promised land. Um, he's probably shared the great commission of Jesus, which happened a few years before that to him. Um, but the man in Isaiah 53, 11 would have read, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, he's talking about Jesus, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And the fact is that we all place our, our identity, our sense of our own righteousness in other things. Job performance, job I have, resume, the inner circle that I'm in, what people think about me. I mean, the list goes on and on and on as, long, as the day is long. We will put our identity in other things. Because as John Calvin said, we are idol factories. We're constantly, because of our brokenness, running after other things to tell us who we are rather than the one thing that should, God. So this man, though he was a God-fearer, could have put his confidence in. He was the high head of state in his job, in, um, in his performance, in perhaps in being on the outside. Maybe in being a eunuch in a good way, but maybe he experienced tons, a lot of rejection, certainly from the Jews Certainly couldn't get really close to the temple precincts. That maybe had become part of his identity. I am a eunuch. I am a state servant. I am not enough in some ways. But in other ways, I outperform everybody. But this beautiful gospel text says that um, 
it says that my righteous one, by his knowledge and his work, will, be, will make many to be accounted righteous. God, through the work of Jesus Christ, takes the credit of Jesus and places it on all who look to him by faith. And what he did on that cross is he also took all of our sins and misdeeds and rebellions and he put them on Jesus. And Jesus allowed that to soak into his bones and his soul, becoming sin, giving us his righteousness. This, what would have been explained to him and what is true is that this man would have emerged with a new identity, a righteousness that was not his through what he'd done, but Jesus's conferred on him received by faith. And that is the gospel. And that would have been just verses after the text that we read. Also, and so what good news. And so, of course, he departs with joy. I mean, the Holy Spirit takes, just takes Philip. One of the, one of the funny, cool parts of the text, right? He just, he, he transports him, sort of a Star Trek kind of thing, and puts him somewhere else after they come up out of the baptismal waters. And it says that the man continued on. He wasn't like, oh, no, the guy, that, the only person that knew the gospel. No, he doesn't do that. He has what he needs. He has the scriptures. He has the Holy Spirit. He has Christ living inside of him now. And he goes and he, in his capacities, um, continues no doubt to live and to preach the gospel as a new creation. But here's, here's one cool thing about this. Check this out. Uh, the man probably, stay with me on the ground level, after the Holy Spirit takes Philip, the man probably would have continued to read. He had days left in his journey. He's in a chariot. He's comfortable. He's reading from the Isaiah scroll in the Septuagint. He's in chapter 53. Three chapters later, he probably would have at least finished Isaiah scroll out. It's only 66 chapters. And three chapters later in Isaiah 56, he would have come across a passage that says that through the work of my servant, I will make the eunuch better than a son or a daughter. What do you think it was like for him? now a new creation in Christ, who had been brought all the way into the Holy of Holies through the torn flesh and shed blood of Jesus Christ, with the Spirit of God now living in him to read those words. God loves to come after the one, and he does it um, to those who receive him through the person of Jesus Christ. You know, I'm just going to touch on these, but you think about Zacchaeus, one of the cooler things about that which I read again in my time with the Lord this week about that episode. We, we sing it, some of us as kids, you know, Zacchaeus, even if you don't know much about the New Testament, you might have heard about it. He was a tax, a, the chief tax collector. We know he was short and we sang as kids the song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. It's a great word. If you don't, we use the word we enough. You, you start using it now. Um, I give you permission. It's a great word. We, the Scots still use it. Um, one of the things about that text that I think is neglected sometimes that struck me again when I read it, Jesus is coming into a village. He's coming into a town. And by this time, he has a huge retinue. And he's, his, he can't even have, get any time alone because he's so famous. People are clamoring to see Jesus. He comes into the village, the only person in the narrative that he talks to, in a village with hundreds of people thronging, is Zacchaeus. He comes after this guy who's so rejected by his own people because of his own misdeeds. He can't even, normally a shorter person like a kid or something could push through the crowd, excuse me, pardon me, pardon me, excuse me. He's so, Zacchaeus is so, he knows he's on the outside so much that he's going to get, bam, an elbow in the face if he tries to do that. 
So he climbs a tree, and Jesus just looks at him, doesn't talk to anyone else. Today I've, I must come to your house, which is a way of saying, come on, you on the outside, come in. I love you. I've come for you. He comes after the one. He does the same with the Samaritan woman, also very much on the edges. And then the text for the Gerasene demoniac, who's raving, mad, cutting himself, breaking chains, full of thousands of demons. The text seems to, seems to suggest that Jesus takes the trip across the, the, uh, the Sea of Galilee just for that appointment. He comes after the one. And this is the doctrine, the reform doctrine of, it's sometimes called limited atonement. I think that's a bad that's a bad label. I call it particular atonement. He comes after particular people that God the Father, John 10, has given him. He secures our salvation. That's why this doctrine is also called the doctrine of definite atonement. He, Jesus did not die for a faceless mass of people hoping some would come. He came to secure through his life and his death and his resurrection the salvation, the full bringing back to his Father of everyone who would trust in him. On our end, what it looks like is do what God says, proclaim the gospel, broadcast it. The definite part is up to God, but, but rest assured that he has secured our salvation. Now, as I talk about God doing this, um, you may think, okay, God always comes after the one person and he, um, he, especially the one on the edges, that's true. He saves us with, his, with our names on his heart on the cross, one person at a time. However, he's also a God of the nations. He has a heartbeat for all peoples. He saves from every nation, one person at a time. Another servant song, the second servant song in Isaiah 49 says, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, in other words, ethnic Israel, and to bring back the preserved of Israel, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. One of the cool things about this one person, he's very clearly evidence of the fact that God goes after the one, is that he embodies this truth as well, that God has a heart for all nations. Because here's a man who's not a Hebrew, he's not an Israelite, and God has gone after him. It shows us his heart for each and every one of us, for that person that he's going to send you to and that next person he's going to send you to. But it also shows us his heart for the nations. And Houston is a city of nations. Reach a neighbor, reach a nation. Reach the city, reach the world. So I, I have to believe that God has a special heartbeat for, for this city. Um, so this is a particularly important uh, and poignant text for us as Houstonians here. So I just want to close with just a bit of, um, a bit of sort of some charges. So if you have notes, um, I'd love, I usually don't, I, I prefer people not taking notes and just listening, but just a few things. If you want to write them down, fine. If not, that's okay. I'm going to charge, I have charged my people for this too, but I really want to bring this home and say, I, I would love for you to consider doing this as a church, as a people. And you are, we are one church. We are a family of churches. We are one church. We are all belong to the, the invisible um, body of Christ Jesus, the real but invisible body of Christ. Make a list of 30 people, first of all, in your life who are far from God. If you don't have such a list, I want to encourage you, that number might sound big. I guarantee you, you have at least three times that in your life of people that God has put they don't, they're not there by accident. God has put them in your life for you to at least begin to pray for them and to long to see them saved 
and to work toward that in God's, in God's timing and God's way. But make, would you make a list of those 30 people? If it's 30, it's big, it's a challenge, but it's manageable, and you can pray for one a day. I want you to encourage you to make a, a list of 30 and just pray for one of those people a day. Second thing is I want, you to, I want to encourage you and charge you to bless those people. Of that list of 30 that you're praying for one a day, be, let's become a culture, let's become a church, a missionary church, an outgoing church like Philip, like the, like the Acts church, like Jesus of, of blessing. And what does that mean? It means, I mean, there's a book on it, but, and you probably know it, but begin with prayer, be. As you engage them in some sort of conversation, listen. Spend that time really focusing on saying very little and just asking questions. Get to know their story. Thomas Nagel, equality and partiality, retired emeritus, New York uh, University philosopher, um, award-winning Jewish atheist, self-professed atheist, um, very insightful. Equality and partiality, read it years ago, most of it. Um, talks, he just says something simple, but it blew my mind then. Every single person, at the time there were six billion, now there are what, seven and growing, billion people on the earth. Every single one of the seven billion people on planet earth has just as much of a three-dimensional story full of joys and pains as I do, as you do. I know that's an obvious truth, but we can be so self-focused. We can tend to two-dimensionalize people. Listen to this person's story. It'll give you a heart for them. It'll help you know how to pray. So B, L, and then E is eat a meal with them. We we love doing that at Sojourn. We're about to do that just now at the picnic, and we're all going to melt out there, but it's going to be okay because there's ice and water and other stuff. Um, B, L, E, eat with them, and then S, serve them in some way. Bring them. We love bringing. We're not good at it. We're trying to get better. We're, we try to, my wife makes great banana breads and pumpkin breads and cakes. Like, dude, who's not going to be putty in your hand after you bring them a freaking cake, you know? Serve them in some way. Mow their lawn. I don't know. It could be smaller. And then finally, share how Christ has transformed your life. They can't again say that. So let's become a culture of, of, of listing out and praying for the folks that, we're, that are far from God in our lives and then blessing them. Um, so... I want you also, I want to ask that you would make it a goal to have one person or couple or family to your house that is far from God. Once a week, but can I say at the very least once every couple weeks? Can you make it a goal? It's going to require calendaring because it doesn't happen. Naturally, we just tend to invite the people we're closest to and that we're comfortable with and the same people over and over again. Um, But Jesus commands otherwise, right? Um, And lastly, can I just say, just be as Philip was, as invariably as Jesus was and as they were in the book of Acts, be listening. God, what are you doing right now? How do you want to use me today? Wake up saying that. Lord, you know, sing the doxology. Thank you, Lord. Praise God, heaven and earth, for giving me life, for giving me life in Jesus, for putting my two feet on the floor. Now, what do you have for me today? Be in tune. Listen through his word. Listen by his spirit. It might sound insane. It might sound insane. If it, if it contradicts his word, don't do it. <laughs> okay. I'm not crazy preacher guy telling you to contradict God's word. What he says never contradicts his word. It sometimes seems like it does. Um, What are you doing? What are you saying? He's going to use you. He could do it by himself. He doesn't typically. He uses us. It's crazy. It's wonderful. Um, And after, like I said, after, after this, the eunuch is baptized and he goes on his way rejoicing. This one man over time helped change an entire kingdom. Um, Let me just close with this. Philip continues north along the coast after he's literally transported by the Holy Spirit. I love the efficiency of God. God's like, you're done. You're done here. One guy, totally worth the time. Of course, absolutely, 100%. 
but you're done here. And so he sends him off to continue, and, and Philip goes north to continue to preach the gospel to whole villages. F.F. Bruce, famous New Testament commentator, his closing comments are charming and they're worth, they're worth finishing with. He says this. He says, there Philip seems to have settled down. Okay, north, he goes north of here and it seems, according to our records, that he settles down there. He doesn't keep bopping around for the next 30 years. At least it's there that we find him when he makes his next appearance in the narrative 20 years later. And that's Acts 21 verse 8. By that time, he'd become a family man. I think of Samwise Gamgee and Rosie Cotton and their kids after his adventures uh, at the end of The Lord of the Rings. I finished with Lewis. I'm, I started with Lewis. I'm finishing with Tolkien. So sue me. You know, it's just what I, it's what I do. Um, by that time, he'd become a family man with four daughters, each one a prophetess, worthy children of such a father. How wonderful. This adds to the impression to me that there are different seasons in life and that Philip was like a thinking cannonball out of a cannon with this news, this new and good news. It's not information. It's more than information. It is information, but it's good news that God has made a way for the farthest people from him to come right in to, the, to his family as close as Christ, his only son, is in perfect intimacy and affection and full affection and love to him. So are we brought that near by the blood of Jesus Christ, by his life and by his death, shown so by his resurrection. And he just can't, he's like a man with his hair on fire, as, is all, as are all the apostles. They can't contain their joy. We shouldn't let distance and time, 2,000 years, dampen the wonder and the miracle of that. And yet later he goes on to different, Philip goes on and settles down and continues in his own way to minister but here in this season, we see this wonderful uh, zeal where he obeys the Lord and sees this missionary God um, use him to do this wonderful thing. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for Philip. Thank you for the Ethiopian eunuch. Thank you that your ways are not our ways. They're higher. They're better. The ultimate victory was the ultimate seeming defeat. Thank you that we have the same word that the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip had. We have the completed written word, the canon, wherein you show us Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. We have the same spirit. And Lord, it's, it's still you working through your people, and we're so blessed for that. And we pray that you would make us again a missionary people, um, that we might see people come to you, Jesus, the lost saved, the people on the outside brought inside. Thank you for bringing us near, not through our own good deeds, but through the, um, through the work and the person of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray and continue to worship you. Amen.